0: No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. Since 2010, the most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from top experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style. Both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on the radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart.
2: And welcome to this latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining me up today. Uh, as the announcer mentioned, you can call in today at 347 347- Three two four three zero eight zero to ask questions. Or if you're super shy, you can always email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. And uh, don't forget, if you uh, have Amazon Alexa, uh, you can now say Alexa, uh, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. And Alexa will play the most recent edition of the Nonprofit Coach. And you can just say next and next and next and, next, and listen to uh, the entire series of Nonprofit Coach uh, podcasts right there on Alexa. As always here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with Page One News. We have a special treat here over on Page One. Steve Nill, uh, who is uh, the publisher of Charity Channel Press, is joining us today. Uh, because he's actually going to make the introduction to our page two expert, uh, Alex Broby, who has been here on the Nonprofit Coach before. Um, but she is back again with something brand new. And, uh, Steve, you've even got an update to the update.
3: <laughs> sure. Well, we had every intention of just talking about uh, book two, which is, of course, what, what we're going to do. But, um as of this morning, uh, Alex's third book in the uh, her Zen and the Art of Fundraising series just came out and is available as of this morning on Amazon.
2: Well, congratulations on that uh, uh, to Alex. We will uh, congratulate her when she joins us um, in uh, just a moment. But why don't you uh, do the honors of uh, introducing sure. Alex for today and the book that we will be uh, uh, reviewing today.
3: Love to. Thank you, Ted. Well, uh, this is not Alex's first time on your show. Thank you for inviting her back. I'm always happy to introduce her. Um, Alex Brovey is the Senior Director of Gift Planning at Northwell Health Foundation in New Hyde Park, New York. She's worked in gift planning for over two decades at four nonprofit organizations. So she's got many, many years of experience that she brings to our discussion today. Um, Alex is the past board member and treasurer of the National Association of Charitable Gift Planners, uh, where she currently serves as chair of its Leadership Institute. And she's also president emeritus of the Philanthropic Planning Group of Greater New York in New York City and has been an instructor for the Plan Giving Certificate Program at Malloy College. She's a frequent lecturer across the United States on topics related to charitable giving and has had articles published in several national publications. Um, She has a BA from uh, the Pennsylvania state university, uh, Phi Beta Kappa, a Juris doctor from Georgetown university law center and an LLM in estate planning from the university of Miami Mm -hmm. law school. So she, and I uh, trust me when I say, I'm just really, Scratching the surface. Uh, We don't have time to get into all of her background, but she has an amazing background um, and is, I think, considered one of the very top people um, in fundraising and particularly in planned giving. And it's it's just been a pleasure to work with her on her, uh, I was going to say her first two books, but as of this morning, her first three or her three books um, as her publisher. She's a delight to work with. Um, She never makes me feel like um, a lesser gift planner, (laughs) but I am compared to her, and uh, I'm really happy just to be able to introduce her, and I know the two of you have a lot to talk about on her second book. Let me mention quickly her first book, in case listeners aren't familiar. Um, She published in uh, March of last year her first book, Mm -hmm. Zen and the Art of Fundraising, Eight Pillars of Success. And on the heels of the success and popularity of that book, she came back with her second book, Zen and the Art of Fundra- Fundraising, Eight More Pillars of Success, which is um, today's topic. And um, those two books uh, can be read uh, together in in the order uh, or uh, out of order. It really doesn't matter. I, I think what what I appreciate the most about Alex is she has this Mind where she can take a um a body of thought uh certainly uh in this case Zen, and lay it against what she has learned in her decades of experience in fundraising and explore what comes out of doing that um it's It's a very abstract way of thinking, but what she's come up with is something wholly unique. I've never seen anybody write anything like this on the topic of fundraising Mm -hmm. before, which is why I'm so excited to be her publisher, Mm -hmm. quite honestly. And um, so what she has done is sort of distilled out Mm -hmm. attributes of what it takes to be a truly Mm -hmm. amazing professional fundraiser and frankly, a better human being um, if you really want to get, get down to it and to illustrate that in her second book, Um, Mm -hmm. She talks about these um, pillars um, that make an extraordinary fundraiser, Uh, Mm -hmm. passion, honesty, courage, Mm -hmm. resilience, acceptance, gratitude, Mm -hmm. positivity, intuition. Mm -hmm. And so I hope I queued that up well, because I I think I I never get tired of Mm -hmm. hearing from her on on this because I'm Mm -hmm. learning Things that I never thought I, I, you know, I'm 62. I've been at, at this for several decades myself. She's mm-hmm. one of the few who's come along who's taught me so much that I hadn't already learned in all those years. And so I'm excited mm-hmm. to turn the mic back over to you, Ted, and uh, mm-hmm. listen into the conversation.
2: Well, it's uh, a thank you. That's quite a, an introduction. Let's bring Alex in. Alex, uh, Steve is still uh, with us here. Uh, that's quite an introduction, wouldn't you say? <clears throat>
1: Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much, Steve, and thank you so much, Ted. I'm I'm so happy and pleased to be back speaking with everyone. Hello, everyone.
2: Well, it's good to have you back, and uh, Steve Nail. Thank you so much uh, again for that uh, uh, terrific introduction. Uh, Listen, Alex, you were with us uh, several months back uh, with your first book, as Steve mentioned, Zen and the Art of Fundraising, Eight Pillars of Success, uh, which was a very successful podcast uh, here on the show. So obviously – you, you struck a, a note uh, with our listeners, uh, as Steve said. This is, um, you know, just a wonderful way to to think about how to approach uh, fundraising. Uh, we have this new book, um, Eight More Pillars of Success. So let me start off by by, by asking, um, why a more?
1: <laughs> you know, uh, and someone asked me, you know, are there going to be more books on this topic? The thing is, as Steve alluded to earlier, you know, when I
4: mm.
1: – I guess this book was born out of a number of things, but one of those things mm. was asking myself after two decades, how could I be a better fundraiser? I, I have certain skills. Mm. I Like a human, every human being, I have certain flaws and certain attributes that I'm really – things that I'm really good at. Mm. But how could I be better? We all have weak things or things that we can work on. And so as I was writing mm. that first book and going through and coming up with these pillars mm. – I started to realize that there were a couple more that have helped me over the years and that I'm sharing these pillars with myself and then with other fundraisers. Uh, The pillars can also be repurposed for other things too. So, you know, I sometimes have to rely on these pillars when I'm in the car in rush hour or when I am waiting to hear back from someone and I have a deadline or when I am a little weak in an area and need to give myself the power to, to pursue it and to move on. So I sort of came up with these as I was walking working through the first book.
2: Well, um, let me just share with you um, a, a quote from uh, someone who uh, um, has gone through your book and and, ha- and it seems that Kathy Sheffield has really been, uh, she's a president of Thinkgiving, um, has really been touched um, by your approach uh, by what you what you have written here. Um, So I I want to share uh, her quote in her review um, and ask you to sort of reflect on how that fits into your overall thinking for this book. Um, Kathy Sheffield says, the book is a wonderful reminder that fundraisers should grant themselves permission to tune out the world around us and focus on self-care. Quieting our minds, resting, breathing, and tuning out the noise will lead us to greater professional and personal success. This form of self-respect and self-awareness is what is needed for us to continue making the world a better place in our vocations. Can you sort of reflect on how that fits into where you started and where the book came from?
1: Sure. So Kathy herself is a veteran fundraiser and someone who I look up to and who has a biography and a resume at least as long, if not longer than mine. So, I think when, when I ask Kathy mm-hmm. to look at my book and to give it some thought, every person mm-hmm. who read my book is applying the book to themselves. And that's probably appropriate because mm-hmm. as I was going through the book, I make it very clear that these pillars are ones that you have to look in a mirror. You first apply these mm-hmm. to yourself and you get a sense of whether or not you exhibit these mm-hmm. pillars or these traits of excellence. And then, of course, you can go out and look for these mm-hmm. pillars in others. The most fascinating thing that I find when I really truly thought about these pillars is that we can Mm -hmm. find them in our donors and our prospects. Mm -hmm. We can also find them in colleagues and friends and family, but we Mm -hmm. can find these in our donors. And sometimes these pillars are reciprocal. Mm -hmm. So it's like looking in a mirror, but I always suggest that fundraisers start with themselves. Start with yourself first, measure yourself on this pillar, Mm -hmm. see where you are, and then go ahead and go out there in the world of donors and prospects and apply the pillars. And as you apply them, you will find others possess them as well.
2: And in, so let's, let's jump right in here, um, Alex, um, you know, picking up where um, uh, your last book uh, left off, uh, we're, we're now up to pillar number nine, uh, which is passion. Um, so talk to us about uh, passion and why that, that immediately follows the first eight pillars.
1: So, you know, in a way, passion could have been the very first pillar, right? I, I think most that, people, if I, I not every person.
2: Yeah, implicit to my, yeah, implicit mm-hmm. to my question is, is is that that seems like a starting point, but, but for your book it's not. Or for the two right. Books, so,
1: right. So with, when you pair the two together, I had identified eight, eight other pillars, so this would make it the ninth pillar. When I looked back and realized what's kind of driving mm-hmm. all of these things, Why have pillars? Why be a fundraiser in the first place? And that boils down to your passion for the cause. And it's interesting looking out at the world of fundraising after being in this for two decades. And people will take jobs anywhere they can get them these days, right? And I think there are more people that want jobs than there are wonderful jobs, although I could be wrong. So when you want to work somewhere, you want to feel positive about it. You want to feel that little pull that makes you not press this news button a third time, get up mm-hmm. out of your bed, get your day started, and get into the office. And I can say mm-hmm. I'm really proud. I still get up after 20 years of doing this and look forward to going to sit in my office and doing my work and speaking with donors and prospects and talking to colleagues and donors' advisors. So passion is very key, and that's why I wanted to start this second book with that really mm-hmm. important
2: and passion is contagious, and so your your passion is is likely to, you know, flow to your staff. So you're you're likely to recruit a different sort of person than if you're just sort of punching the clock. You're also likely to attract a different kind of donor than than uh, if you're not passionate.
1: I agree with you. I I think probably a synonym in some ways for passion is energy. And I, 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 along with everyone else, can't mm-hmm. say that I'm 100% passionate 100% of the time.
4: So mm-hmm. passion,
1: we get to trade, and we get to build on each other. Look, for mm-hmm. example, at, our, at people who just make a call to us to say, I think mm-hmm. I'd like to make a gift to your charity. Tell me more about what you do. Mm-hmm. We are, in part, imparting our passion to our prospects and donors, and in turn, when they mm-hmm. make a gift, they're fulfilling and helping build our passion as well. So it's very reciprocal. Mm-hmm. Same thing with our colleagues.
2: That's right. That's right. Pat, uh, pillar number ten, the second pillar um, in this uh, new book, uh, is honesty. Um, and you know, I, I I really want to spend some some time here because. Um, You know, honesty uh, seems to be something that is uh, at a premium in our society, um, how that's uh, represented. Um, And so talk to me about honesty, maybe transparency, and and why is the development officer, why is the person reading this book responsible for honesty?
1: So honesty is one of those things that, Hopefully we were all taught at a very early age by our parents or loved ones. And even in, mm-hmm. in preschool, the, the do not tell a lie thing is something that, that we have ingrained mm-hmm. in us. It's, it's, you know, part of the biblical teachings of the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. It's just being real and being genuine. And probably one way to view being honest is to view it from the perspective of our donors. When when a donor think about a time when you were a donor to to a charitable organization, when you picked up the phone mm-hmm. and called and asked a question, you wanted the person to be responsive, mm-hmm. but what you value most is their honesty. So if you ask, you know, mm-hmm. how how did my fund do? If someone has an endowed fund at a charity, how did the endowments grow? Um, how was mm-hmm. my money used? Is that not a very important? question that donors Mm. have every right to ask, and they do expect and should get an Mm. honest answer. So I turn that around and sit back Mm. in my chair on the other side of my desk, and I think I want to be the most honest person that Mm. I can. If a donor asks me to do something, and I know we can't do it, then the simplest Mm. and most direct answer is Mm. no, followed by an explanation. So donors should and Mm. can demand honesty. So fundraisers have to be sure we give it. After all, our charity's mission is based on doing good, and part of doing good is being honest.
2: However, there are still budgets and there are campaigns and pressure on uh, our listeners uh, to toe the line, to do as they're told by mm-hmm. administration, sometimes can fall in, in the way of of being honest. What advice do you have uh, for our, our listeners today in terms of, how they would navigate in those waters, and what do you do when your own sense of honesty runs up against what you're told to do?
1: Yeah, that's a a very difficult question, Mm -hmm. probably one that I wish I had, you know, 15 or 20 minutes to think about. But I would say we're all put in situations where we need to make tough choices, Maybe we don't agree with something, but we, we're paid by our nonprofit, so we need to go forward mm-hmm. and, and, and do our jobs, which is to raise more money. But but I've never heard anyone say, to be dishonest, I've, I've mm-hmm. never seen or heard of anyone saying outright lie to a donor mm-hmm. about about any particular thing. So I don't think honesty is one of those things that you compromise on. Look what happens in the news when charities don't use the money as they're supposed to. None of us want to work for one of those charities when that happens, myself included.
2: Well, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's easy to, um, you know, to preach honesty when it's black and white. And I think that, you know, or at least I hope um, that uh, those, that are taking the time to listen uh, to this podcast can understand the, you know, the stark difference between right and wrong it's black and white. I think most of our listeners are faced with um, issues that are very much in the gray um, in terms of, you know, what they know and what they say, what is told to them uh, to do versus what they believe is right professionally. Um, and I think that's why, you know, AFP, the Association of Fundraising uh, Professionals, has a code of ethics, um, and an ethics committee uh, is because those areas of gray uh, do uh, plague um, uh, our industry as it does anyone else.
1: They, they most certainly do, and I didn't mean to imply mm-hmm. that they didn't. They most certainly do, and we're sometimes faced with difficult situations. I, I call it a tug of war. I mean, I guess I would have two mm-hmm. additional thoughts. One is think about the the golden rule that we all learned, again, probably at an early age, do unto others as you would have them mm-hmm. do unto you. I've also heard people say, would you say what you're about to say if the person across the table or or place from you was your mother? That's another way to look at it. And, and a third thing I would remind everyone is referring mm-hmm. back to book number one, you know, I explored the traitor pillar of being a mentor. If you're faced with a situation that you really don't know what to do, This is a great time to call your mentor or find a mentor. Even attorneys in the practice field have an ethics hotline that they can anonymously send a a request in and get an answer and advice back. So maybe sometimes you might need to seek advice on on a real difficult gray issue.
2: Yeah, I I think that is really terrific advice um, when it comes to, you know, issues very much in the gray um, is don't make a snap decision. I always tell people, um, you know, uh, write down your answer and sleep on it overnight. If you read it the next morning and it's still the right answer, then go with it. Um, another sort of a rule of honesty that, that I share with people is if everything that you know and everything that you have just said is printed on the front page of the morning paper, would you still say it? Um, yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, if that, if, if, if your answer is yes, then I, I think you're on the right side of honesty, um, but I, you know I, I before we move on uh, to the eleventh um, pillar, which you know very much I think can can tie into this um, I, I think honesty in a lot of ways is is spoken about in sort of today 's speak um, with transparency, transparency to the process and transparency uh, to information would Would you say that those those are um, equivalent or just um, related?
1: So, I think this goes back a little bit to looking at the pillar mm-hmm. of honesty through what I call my Zen filter. Transparency is a mm-hmm. word that's flaunted and flouted about, especially in the corporate world and in the nonprofit world. Mm-hmm. And everyone is valuing transparency. And I'm transparency is a wonderful thing, it's mm-hmm. something we should expect and something we should provide, especially when we're. Talking about it in the context of donors and nonprofits. The thing is, transparency is outward mm-hmm. focus. It's focusing on everyone kind of looking there, whereas honesty is mm-hmm. something inside of you. You know whether or not you're honest. Most people don't apply, they're, most people don't ask if they're transparent. They ask themselves if they're honest. So what you want mm-hmm. to be is honest, and then you can add the words and transparent, but they're not exactly synonymous. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Okay. Well, I think that's, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's a fair point. Uh, you know, I, I think where honesty sometimes runs up against reality uh, for many of our listeners is in the fact that many organizations who hire fundraisers, development officer, whatever title you, you might be uh, using, um, the one common denominator is that, that they know that they want the money they don't always come with the same understanding of what it takes and sort of the the implicit trust that needs to be built between an institution and their donors um, in terms of how donated funds are used um, versus other types of funds that might be available to the organization. And and what I I find is that there, there is a lack of understanding that donated funds are a different kind of revenue. Uh, for an organization and should not be treated the same as all other types of monies.
1: Right. It's pretty complex to get into the nuances and there gosh, there are people who specialize in this. Your comment kind of reminded me of, you know, the when you watch TV shows or when you practice law and you go up and take the stand for anyone listening if you've ever had to if you ever were called to be a witness, the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And that and that okay. honesty and transparency and the best practice of all of it wrapped up in that in that one short phrase. That's kind of what we need to give our donors, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so, you know, certainly when explaining different gift options, gift planners do it. Fundraisers are now giving gift ideas to their donors that incorporate gifts that come in both now and later. Some of us like to put a fancy term on them called blended gifts. But if you're talking to someone, you want to go through it goes back to the pluses and minuses. None of us ever make a decision about anything unless we do it on that split second, like you referred to with just looking at the pluses. We all need to balance out the minuses. The minuses sort of make the thing whole. They make it real and they make sure that you're being honest.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely agree. And and thank you for spending a little bit more time on that. I, I just think that honesty and transparency you know, it becomes, a you know, maybe a, a, an even more important pillar in, in what you're laying out here because without that, I think it corrodes all of the other uh, uh, pillars if, if you, you start compromising uh, on honesty. And that brings us right to uh, the 11th pillar, which I think is in, in many ways for many organizations can very much be related to the 10th pillar, honesty, and that is courage. Um, this is, as you say in your book, this pillar is a quiet ember that propels what begins as a seed of a gift to the next level. Being a fundraiser recur- requires courage to ask questions, question motivations, and motivate others uh, to be generous. And I think, you know, this is certainly related uh, to honesty because, um, you know, while we want to believe that all of our donors are altruistic and are philanthropists, Um, who are giving for the purest of reasons, Uh, we do know that there's lots of different kinds of motivations uh, to make a charitable contribution. And I think, um, you know, I certainly encourage our listeners to understand how important it is that they of anyone on the staff of your nonprofit organization need to approach these issues eyes wide open.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, and at you know the, the start mm-hmm. of what you said about it being related to honesty, it's like a little bit of an inverse thing. I mean, if you're a fundraiser, you, you get an A or an A-plus in courage because mm-hmm. it's not a job that 90% of the population would do, even though we have a lot of people who work for not-for-profit organizations. So we've all been through the fundraiser jokes, and when you're an mm-hmm. attorney you get both fundraiser and attorney jokes. But for fundraisers, you, you get the joke, you know, what are you doing? Go, you, are you here to beg me mm-hmm. to for money? And that shows a complete lack of understanding of fundraising as a profession and what it is we do. Um, being able to ask for a gift is actually a gift in itself. Mm-hmm. To be able to get to the point when someone's with you and to say, would you do this? Normally you wouldn't ask in a vacuum. There's a relationship there based on mm-hmm. honesty and girded in passion and you take that and you move forward mm-hmm. with it. But courage is part of what makes that happen. What I'll add, Ted, is that courage is also the reason that many donors got to be where they are to be able to make their gifts. Mm-hmm. They had the courage, our donors, to try out something new. Some of them were the first in their family to go to college Some of them have established a fund at a place and they didn't even know what they were getting into when they started. They just thought they were writing a check and they get a little thank you note and life goes on. There's a whole thing around what we do for people once they make a gift that most donors, I don't think realized when they started. So courage is something both absolutely necessary for fundraisers, but also present in our donors.
2: That's right. That's right. And I, I, I really find it so interesting and helpful that you put right in your description of courage um, to question motivations.
1: Yeah. You know, it's really easy. If someone sends in Mm -hmm. a check to call them and say, thank you, that's a different pillar. Mm -hmm. Um, But expressing gratitude is really important. Donors expect it. We should give it, but it's a whole different thing to have the courage to say to someone why And this relates a little bit to the pillar of curiosity from book number one, but to ask people, why did you make this gift? Why did you make the gift in this amount? Why did you make a gift with it by check or by giving stock? Or why would you consider including my charity in your will? You know, some donors, depending on how you ask it, could turn to you and say, well, why not? And I want to say, well, I want to know why you did it. What inspired you to do it? And it takes courage to keep asking that question, but we need those answers to serve our donors
2: well. To serve our donors well and to also understand, you know, I, I as my listeners know, I'm president and CEO of an international donor advice fund called CAP America, and, and I often think that while there are so many more regulations that have to be followed uh, to make a, a contribution internationally versus uh, making a contribution uh, to a domestic charity, you know, I, I often think that it's, it's actually in some ways a, a more complete 360-degree look at a contribution uh, because one of the things that the IRS requires um, that you understand and review very openly and honestly um, in making an international contribution is the relationship between the donor and the charity. Uh, and is there any quid pro quo that is expected uh, of the charity in consideration for uh, the contribution. Um, and if there is, then the contribution, uh, the, the grant, cannot be made. Um, and I think to be that explicit, to to be looking into that and to have to record um, that there is or is not a relationship uh, there, I think is, is a good practice that many um, uh, development officers do not always engage in in terms of, you know how cozy is the relationship between uh, the donor and the organization, and is there any quid pro quo for that contribution that you should know about?
1: Right, so you brought up a whole a whole other level of, of mm-hmm. courage that's required. You know courage comes up in in all kinds of ways in the fundraising realm. It's not just asking a donor, but it, it's having the courage to look into something that you don't know about and and educating yourself so you can be a better fundraiser. Mm -hmm. It's the courage to talk to a colleague or or supervisor when they say something or do something and it's just contrary or different from how you've done it to have the courage to explore that with them further. And it's the same thing with the donors. You need the courage to explore these things and make sure that they have the foundation of what they need to make the gift and to make it work. No one wants an unhappy donor. Those words kind of really don't go together well, do they? Unhappy
2: donor. Yeah, yeah. no, they, no, uh, no, they don't. Um, so I think you know, courage is, uh, it come as you said, comes in a lot of different forms. I think, you know, it is also tied to honesty in that, uh, oftentimes it is the the development officer, the vice president of fundraising or development, uh, the organization that has to um, bring that extra level of education, you know, into the, the executive suite for the nonprofit to help them understand what is appropriate and was not appropriate in terms of accepting gifts and the influence that a donor might have on the organization and consideration for the gift.
1: I think our nonprofits get, get a little bit of credit mm-hmm. for having the courage to give all of us a chance to do well by them. And especially when you start to hire people who specialize in different things, for example, gift planners. It takes courage on behalf of someone to realize that there's a need and to try to fulfill that need and to take a chance. Same thing with fundraisers when they go outside of their, you know, area that they're familiar with and they, and they try something new. There's a lot of courage to be found in fundraising and in fundraisers.
2: And uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to uh, – we are going to talk about resilience – uh which of course you know follows so uh so well after honesty and and courage uh because you just might need a little bit more uh energy and a little bit more uh resilience um as you're uh, as you're planning um to uh uh continue and getting up the next day and doing the work that you have at your organization uh hang tough and we'll be right back after this break
4: Have you ever wished you could take back an email you sent to the wrong person? Or have that nagging feeling that your confidential message was forwarded without your consent? Do you sometimes email sensitive data even though you know most email is insecure? Well, we all have, because we're busy. And because in the world of email, there are no takebacks. Until now. Introducing Virtru, the simple way to send and receive secure email with confidence. Virtru is easy to install and use. And it works with your favorite email programs like Gmail, Outlook, Yahoo, Mac Mail, and more. When you hit the Send Secure button, your email is encrypted before it leaves your computer or smartphone. And even better, you can revoke a message at any time. You decide whether a message can be forwarded by recipients. You can track where your message is forwarded and more. Download Virtue today and start sharing with confidence. Because everyone deserves digital privacy and security without hassle.
0: Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at TedHart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart.
2: And now we're back with uh, the 12th uh, pillar, um, and that is resilience. Uh, This pillar is a trait of geniuses and fundraisers alike, Uh, Thank you for uh, putting us in uh, the same uh, group as geniuses. Resilience takes persistence to the next level by uh, turning situations into lessons that enable our passion to proceed to a desired end. Resilient fundraisers view a no as a possibility. So no is a possibility, and you've got to be resilient to understand that. Help us uh, walk through uh, resilience and the 12th pillar.
1: Sure. So resilience is one of those traits that requires that you sometimes dig deep, Mm -hmm. that you have a supply of resources, that you can Mm self-motivate, and that you frankly just recognize that you're not perfect Mm -hmm. and neither is this world. Things go wrong. You don't really need to be resilient when everything's going well, right? Resilience Mm -hmm. is that trait, that pillar, that you need to call upon when things aren't going well for whatever reason. The most common situation in fundraising and the most obvious one would be when you ask a donor for a gift and the donor says no. Does the world stop turning on its access when the donor says no? It might in your own world for a couple of moments, but no, life is going to go on. So if fundraisers have to have their own ability to rise up, kind of overcome whatever the, the setback is, and then move on. It's the old, if you fall off a horse, you need to get back up and get on that horse again. If you get a no from a donor, you need to regroup and maybe go back to the donor or turn to another donor and ask another donor for a gift. I um, have a wonderful a wonderful technique that, mm-hmm. that I use, and I don't know where I originally read it, so I apologize that I cannot attribute the person or the place where I read this, but it was something that guides me when I face difficult situation and I'd love to share that with your listeners thank you so when when you're faced with a difficult situation Mm -hmm. see if you can ask yourself the following three questions and I actually keep these on a note card at my desk in my office
4: Mm
1: -hmm. number one can I find anything funny about this anything at all number two am I going to let this ruin my day and number three Would this be funny if this were happening to someone else? And it's amazing how if you can get past those first two things and get to number three, you can often find the humor in a situation. You know, this pillar, resilience, and a pillar that I wrote about in the first book, Mm -hmm. a sense of humor, kind of go hand in hand. So let me give you an example of something that really happened to me where I applied these three pillars. Mm I planned to meet with a prospective donor, someone Mm -hmm. who I had never met with before, at at a diner for breakfast. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what she looked like, and I was running about five minutes late, and the traffic gods were not cooperating Mm -hmm. with me, and I I just wasn't sure what to do. And I arrived at the diner where we were supposed to meet about five minutes late to an absolutely empty parking lot. Now this diner is one that every time you go by, people are fighting for parking spots. There's a line out the door. It's along three very busy roads at a busy intersection. And I pull in and the parking lot is absolutely empty. And there's a little white sign on the door saying closed for refurbishing. So I'm, sitting there in my car, looking at my clock with the sweat pouring down me, wondering if maybe my prospective donor came, didn't see me there and left, um, or what, what is it that I should do? So I thought, okay, here's a real-life example of when I should apply these three questions. Can I find anything funny about this? Well, sure, mm-hmm. I could picture this being, you know, an example of something written up in a cartoon where you have a really important meeting and you get there and it's closed or, or a nightmare where you have an appointment and you get there and the person isn't there. So I thought, okay, it's not funny at the moment, but okay, I'll go with that. Number two, am I going to let this ruin my day? You know, the good or bad thing about meetings first thing in the morning is sometimes they set the tone for the rest of your day. But mm-hmm. deciding to let something ruin your day is a choice which means you can choose to not let it ruin your day. So I decided I'm not going to let this ruin my day, however this works out. But I was still sitting there nervous. Another minute went by. My prospective donor still hadn't arrived. Mm -hmm. The diner was still closed. And I asked myself, number three, would this Mm -hmm. be funny if this were happening to someone else? And Mm -hmm. I actually started giggling as my stomach Mm -hmm. started grumbling because I thought, yeah, this will be a great one to share with the gang or would be a great one if someone else told me that this happened to them. And, you know, right at that moment, my prospective donor pulls into the lot and pulls into the spot next to me. She rolled her window down. I rolled my window down. We said hello, and we just laughed. And we went and found another place to go. Not every situation is always going to work out like that one in the end with a laugh but nonetheless the application of those three questions made me get over that difficult moment. It made me more
2: resilient. Well, I think, I, thank you for sharing, uh, sharing that story. And I think, you know, many of us uh, could benefit by, you know, keeping that flashcard uh, in front of us and reminding ourselves. And it does relate back to um, in uh, in your first book and, and in our uh, earlier uh, podcast um, Uh, that was uh, just about 10 months ago you were with us. Um, And uh, uh, pillar number seven is a sense of humor, and certainly these are related.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I can't – people have asked me, I don't know if it's a question you were going to ask me, maybe we explored Mm -hmm. it last time, do I have a favorite pillar? I mean, that's like having seven children and asking, do you have a Mm -hmm. favorite child? You know, I I (laughs) don't have a favorite pillar. But, but the sense of humor pillar, when nothing else works, and I mean nothing else works, you've tried every single other pillar and you're sitting in this situation, you've got to try to find something mm-hmm. funny. And usually that means taking yourself out of the moment and giving yourself a broader horizon. Because with the broader horizon, almost anything, including grim things at the moment, almost anything can, can be found to be humorous or at least alleviate the tension of the situation if you apply that pillar of sense of humor. Yeah,
2: and that certainly it ties right into um, the uh, the uh, uh, fifteenth pillar, uh, which is uh, positivity. Um, No, did I jump ahead here? I'm sorry, I did. Um, What I meant to say is it ties into the thirteenth pillar, gratitude. Um, So you know, having that sense of humor, having the gratitude for others to have a sense of humor. Um, You say this pillar requires serenity that may strive to, that that many strive to possess. Successful fundraisers learn to accept change, a variety of donors, and our roles in promoting our charitable missions. So being grateful, um, but I think part of that is uh, understanding that there will be problems. Everything will not always go your way. Um, And if you've learned to be resilient, you've certainly learned to have a good sense of humor, um, but the gratitude to find that in others.
1: You know, the, the the funny thing about pairing gratitude and sense of humor is if you can ever get to the point in your career, and I don't think I'm there quite yet, but if you can ever get to a point where you had just a god-awful phone call with someone, whether it just didn't go the way you planned or you anticipated or, or worse, it had a not-so-good ending um, or one of those random calls that comes in and just doesn't end well. You know, if you could sit there after you hang up, take a few deep breaths and be grateful, that you got that call so that you're testing your resilience, you're testing your courage, you're testing your passion for your organization and what you do, you're testing your ability to see the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Gratitude itself is a gift. It's a gift you give to yourself. You're grateful to have the job that you have. You're grateful to be, have mm-hmm. the skill set so that you can ask people to in turn be express their gratitude through a gift. Gratitude is actually, in one definition, the act of responding to kindness. It's a gift, and you're thanking someone for that gift. But gratitude itself is a gift to be able to be grateful for something.
2: And then, of course, gratitude, uh, being the 13th pillar, also you know, has more of uh, a, a, a traditional um, approach, and that is how do we thank our donors? Um, what is the life cycle of a donor? Um, how do we think of our donors as more than just, uh, you know, a a checkbook?
1: Exactly. And, you know, sometimes I, I just read it, and I think it was Stephen Hill said a little bit earlier, he's been doing fundraising for so long. It's a wonderful thing when we ourselves can do something for a long time and still learn. We're all really lifelong learners, and I think sometimes we can just learn learn how to be more grateful, and we can learn that from our donors. They give us that gift. That's what's wonderful about it.
2: Absolutely, and that mm-hmm. ties right into um, yeah, moving forward to the 14th pillar, uh, which is acceptance. This pillar is recycled to benefit humanity. Gratitude begins with a donor and a gift, extends through the fundraiser, and reaches the recipient who, in turn, experiences gratitude, and the cycle begins. So acceptance is, in, in your mind, is part of a recycling of gratitude,
1: It is, and, you know, I I had to think about it. Probably the legal background Mm -hmm. made me question whether are we accepting a check? Is that the acceptance? Is that the moment of acceptance when a donor gives us a check? Or is the cycle a little bit different, and we make an offer to a donor to to consider making a gift, and Mm -hmm. they accept the offer by giving us the check? So a lot of these things are Mm -hmm. circular. They can be viewed from both points of view. They can be applied inward, and they can be applied outward and acceptance is one of those things you know i would say the difference between fundraising today and maybe 10 or 15 or 20 years ago is that we have learned to accept mm-hmm. so many different people and their reasons for giving and their backgrounds that may be different from ours and their and their reasons for giving although they're fundamentally the same come worded from their point of view. So we accept their point of view. Mm -hmm. We have to accept what assets they may have to give and work with them on that. And then we Mm -hmm. have to accept their parameters. So we have a lot more parameters put on gifts these Mm -hmm. days than we did 10, 15, or 20 years ago. And that's part of the circle of getting to the gift.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, uh, arguably uh, fundraising um, and philanthropy today is far more about the individual and their role in the process than perhaps it was, as you say, 10, 15 years ago, where it may have been sort of more about community or giving or sort of the United Way sort of approach. I think the Internet and in the introduction of the Internet, you know, has put uh, direct impact on charities within reach of of donors and they've seized upon that opportunity. And, and I think, you know, successful fundraisers have, you know, as, as you say here in the 14th pillar have accepted that and have, have internalized that um, as a good thing for philanthropy, because one one of the things I always try to remind uh, fundraisers is uh, donors don't owe us this money.
1: No, making a gift is a purely voluntary decision. And, as you said, a, lo- a lot more donors these days, because of more information, so the knowledge level goes up, they aren't giving necessarily just to be altruistic. They aren't necessarily giving to a general fund, although many still do. But I find that the donors who make the bigger gifts have a particular goal they would mm-hmm. like to help achieve in mind. You know, So a, a donor who gives any particular charity 10 or 100, 1,000, mm-hmm. keep adding the zeros to it to cure cancer, we all hope and hopefully know that one day we'll find cures to different types of cancers. But no donor really believes that their one gift is going to cure cancer. But the hope there is that you're going to apply that money to promote cures for cancer or to promote cancer care so that's something we have to accept when we on behalf of our organizations accept gifts when we accept them we accept them with the donor's terms otherwise we need to have a discussion before we accept that gift about exactly what the terms can be and those discussions require the last pillar or the pillar two pillars ago which was courage that's
2: right that's right so we're, we're, um, we're, we're going to uh, um, uh, move on to the 15th pillar, which is positivity. Uh, and as you point out, this is something that has to be internal um, and then radiates out to others. Uh, happy moments are contagious and multiply for the benefit of all involved donors, recipients, and, and fundraisers. And, and Alex, I think you know, all of us have known people who just sort of seem to live under a cloud. Um, and sort of just radiate sort of, you know, negative energy. And we've been around people who just light up a room just walking into the room. They don't even have to say anything. You know, how I think you're drawing attention to, you know, you need to find that internal energy to radiate out to others. And that's just part of who you are as a fundraiser if you're going to be successful.
1: I have to think that every fundraiser has something positive that they can – find about their jobs about their own self about what they do about the donor that they're working with look we all work with donors who think differently and act differently than we do some of them are a little more challenging they have a couple more restrictions or they require more time and attention than other donors do but it's actually positivity is actually something that does start from within you so you have to try to find it within yourself it is a choice in the end if i'm ever having a day when i'm feeling a little grumpy The happiest thing that pulls me out of it is a phone conversation with one of my donors, whether it's because Mm -hmm. of their passion, whether it's because of their inherent positivity. But I know when I'm on the phone with the donor, I want to show that donor the most positive side of me Mm -hmm. that I can. And donors come to expect that. They don't want to talk to to a snarky person. They don't want to talk to someone who's down or depressed. Mm-hmm. They want a fundraiser who's like a rah-rah cheerleader, not only for mm-hmm. the cause, but in helping them be able to figure out how to make their gift in the best way. So look at it from mm-hmm. the perspective of donors. Donors want a positive view, so give it to them.
2: Mm-hmm. that 's right, and I always try to remind that you know of anybody within your organization, you are the donor 's advocate. Uh, you need to be the one who is bringing um, you know, the 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 desires and wants and needs of the donor you know into discussions it doesn 't mean that the donor always gets their way, and certainly the you know the the tail should not be wagging the dog the The donors should not be dictating the way that the organization is set for. They have a voice. It's an appropriate voice, and I think it's the development officer that makes sure that that voice is heard.
1: Right, and that to the extent you can, that you make, you make the conversations positive. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a couple of phrases that come to my mind. You're, you're never supposed to go to bed angry at a spouse. You're, mm-hmm. You, you uh, I guess, really um, well acclimated mm-hmm. public speakers say that people can actually hear you when you smile. So I'm smiling right now, and I'm hoping that mm-hmm. some of that smile comes through in my voice and psychologists Mm -hmm. have proven that the act of smiling itself calms you down and makes you a little Mm -hmm. more happy, or at least a little less negative you know i find that a great question to Mm -hmm. ask the donor including someone you've had many conversations with and you wonder what else could i say or do with this Mm -hmm. donor i I need to make a call it's time i haven't thanked them in a while Mm -hmm. i need to check in it's been a while since their last gift or i need Mm -hmm. to give them an update is to call them and say hi, Frank, how you doing? What's, mm. what's positive in your life right now? Can you share some positive good news with me? Because mm. then that starts the conversation hopefully off on a positive foot. And a positive conversation can lead to all kinds of good things in terms of mm. a better, warmer, stronger relationship based on a deeper foundation. Mm. And look, when you're happier, you're more likely to make a gift, right?
2: Right. It also mm. sends a a message to to the person on the other end of that, that phone conversation that they're a real person and that you're here to listen to that real person. Um, and that brings us to the 16th uh, pillar. And, and it seems that all of the other pillars are things that you can work on, you can train, you can, um, you know, sort of become better at. But I wonder if Number 16, the intuition, which it says many of us have experienced times in our lives when our intuition guided us. Intuition can play a role in fundraising success when the little voice prompts us to reconnect with a donor. Timing is often the key to success. And I I certainly agree with you that, you know, timing is everything and understanding, you know, who you're talking to and the role of the donor and their life cycle and their giving um, cycle but but I do wonder, is, is tuition something that you can learn? Is tuition, intuition, um, something that you can get better at? Or is it something that if you're going to be successful, you have to come to the job with intuition?
1: I think most likely intuition is a, a trait that some people have already honed more than others. And some people are more, call it, in tune. You know, it is that little voice, and we all have one. Where we can get maybe better is sort of like being able to blow the clouds away so we can really focus. No, honestly, sometimes I sit and I'm, I'm ready to make a call or I'm ready to do a task and something tells me it's not the right time right at this moment for whatever reason. I can't tell you what it is or what would have happened if I had gone forward. But I, I listen to that little voice. The same thing if that little voice tells me it is time to call someone. If someone's name or image comes into my mind when I'm sitting there, one of my donors, I might just stop what I'm doing and send an email or pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm just thinking about you. I can't relate anything earth shattering that's ever happened. But the way you become more intuitive is to take a couple breaths and try to clear your mind. You can be Mm. more intuitive if you simply unclear your mind so that you can give your mind a chance to say what it's really thinking rather than Mm. talk over it and block it out. So having some moments to just think. Don't we all want a job where we can just sit back without emails or visits or meetings with people, Mm. just five minutes to sit and think? In those quieter times Mm. is when the intuition comes into being, and when you can finally listen to your little voice, and it may give you some great guidance.
2: So we get all the way to the, the end of uh, book two. Um, we, we, we have talked about the 16 pillars, and we find out that there is a foundation that, that holds up all of these pillars, and that foundation um, is uh, one essential ingredient that you call respect, respecting yourself and the others is essential to building strong pillars. When your pillars are cemented in a foundation of respect, you will succeed in your career as well as in your life. Very, very well said. We've got um, just about four minutes left, so I'd like you to sort of summarize this uh, around the concept of, of respect, and uh, please make sure that uh, our listeners know how they can uh, reach you, uh, Alex Broby.
1: Sure. So, so the common denominator of all the pillars, when you go through them mm-hmm. all and think they're very different, um, they have to do more with the art of fundraising, mm-hmm. not necessarily the, the hard science of fundraising, but these are all ways mm-hmm. that you hone your craft. What it all comes down to is respect. And so if you step back mm-hmm. for a minute and you say, what, what would make a good relationship with a donor? Or phrase it to yourself in the inverse. If I don't have this in my relationship, I will not have a good relationship. And the answer to that question, if you really ask yourself, is respect. So all good relationships are based on respect. And what happens is you have two people come together for a relationship. Each one of them has to have turn it inward and have enough self-respect, respect themselves and where they are and their flaws and their good traits in order to come together and create a new relationship that's based on respect. So each and every one of these pillars, if you hone it, and as you hone it, leads to more respect for yourself inward, but you show the respect outward to your donors and to your colleagues and to the people that you come in touch with in your communities where your charitable organizations serve constituents. So it does come down to respect. So consider that the next time you're honing a relationship with the person, Mm. show that you're honest, show some resiliency, Mm. ask the mentor for their thoughts and their opinion, and then turn it over to Mm. you and find something in yourself to respect so you can then extend the respect Mm. to your donors and your relationships with them. If anyone wants to contact me, um, I work at Northwell Health Foundation Mm. in New York. I'm available if you Google my name and my email Mm. address, if anyone needs to reach me or wants to share feedback, or comments that I welcome is alexbrove at aol.com. And thank you so much for this opportunity to share some time and some thoughts with everyone, Ted.
2: Alex Brovey, Senior Director, Gift Planning at Northwell Health Foundation in New Hyde Park, New York. Thank you so much uh, for once again being my guest here on The Nonprofit Coach and for bringing us your second book in a three-part series, Zen and the Art of Fundraising, Eight More Pillars of Success, um, which was uh, just recently uh, published. And we look forward to uh, having you come back and uh, share with us uh, your next book, which was just released today, Mm -hmm. Zen and the Art of Fundraising, The Pillars in Practice, available on Amazon. We look forward to uh, having you back. And that is our show today. Uh, Thank you for joining us here
0: on The Nonprofit Coach. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach.